Welcome to the Enlightened Practice Podcast, brought to you by the Luminello Electronic Medical Record folks. Here are your hosts, Dr. Ken Braslow and Dr. Carrie Kagan. Hi, Carrie. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, it's so uh, wonderful to have you here today, and we also have a special guest joining us today, and I'm very excited to have her join us. Uh, please uh, welcome with me Daniela Tempesta. Daniela is a social worker in the Bay Area, and we're going to be talking with her a little bit about uh, what life as a social worker is like, and um, perhaps she can educate us and um, help new grads be thinking about uh, important decisions to be made in their journey and also can just um, enlighten enlighten me at least if not our general uh, listen listeners about what uh, life in her uh, world is like yeah i'm so so excited to have her thanks for having me guys i'm happy to be here thanks well thank you so much for for finding the time to come join us so um first i'd uh, tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you ended up um, going into the world of social work. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I was always knowing that I was going to end up in a helping profession, even from a very young age. Um, like, when I was even in like elementary school and middle school, I was always volunteering in other classrooms and um, you know, in middle school, I remember I was volunteering in like the special ed classroom and that was a very unpopular thing to do. Um, and I don't even in retrospect know what pulled me towards it. Like I just knew that I really got a lot out of participating in these various helping, um, you know, modalities. And so that continued on, you know, through high school and, um, undergrad and in undergrad, I was like trained as like a peer counselor and I was doing a lot of um, health education. So I was a sexual health educator and I also worked for three years on like a um, body image enhancement eating disorder prevention program. And so I was really interested to, and you know, how do we support people around these things, both from, you know, one-on-one support, but also from a broader perspective of like providing education that's accessible. So When it came time to think about grad school, which I sort of knew was inevitable, I felt like I needed more. Um, Social work was the obvious choice for me at that time because social work is so broad. And I didn't entirely know at that moment what I wanted to do with this, you know, sort of passion of mine or this interest in being in a helping profession. Um, And so social work allowed me to sort of make the leap into graduate training without having to fully know exactly what it was that I was going to do because the first year of social work school is a general social work education. And then in your second year, you specialize. Um, Each school has different specialties, but you know, you can specialize in mental health or in children and families. Um, And then some people do something completely different. They specialize in things having to do with policy or community organizing. Some people go into hospital work. So there's all these different hats that you can wear as a social worker. It's so broad. And so I just wanted to be able to kind of leave that open for myself um, to be able to decide as I understood more what was, what was, you know, what I was enjoying doing, what was, what I was gravitating towards. So, um, and then, you know, the one thing that's kind of interesting about social work school, and I don't know if any of the other you guys might be able to comment on this. Any of the other programs do this. But in social work school, literally your first week of school, they put you in a clinical internship. 
Like before you've even like taken any classes, you are like, boom. They just put you right in. And so my first week of school, there I was doing therapy in a group home. And they really want you, whether you're going to go into policy, whether you're going to go into, you know, nonprofit, whatever, they want everybody to have that clinical experience, especially because there's such a focus in social work on the human component and um, really building those relationships and learning how to work with people, as they always say, from, you know, meet them where they're at. And so that was it for me. I mean, being in that situation where I was able to do therapy right away, I found that it was something that I just loved. And it was pretty easy for me then to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do the specialization in mental health and go down that path where I know specifically I will be doing, you know, individual group or some sort of counseling with folks. Wow. Yeah. When I started out, they tried to keep us as far away from patients as as possible. Uh, first, do no harm, I think, was their their philosophy. But I think that's that's fantastic that you were able to get a taste of it right from the beginning. Are all social work programs two years? As far as I know, yes. Okay. So I've you, never heard of a three-year program. Okay. So you don't have a lot of time to figure out where your your um, what resonates with you. You got to get going right from the beginning. Definitely. And I think a lot of people do tend to come in knowing. I mean, I was sort of an unusual person in that I came straight from undergrad. A lot of people in my program had been out working in the field already and kind of already had a flavor of what it was they wanted to do. So it was easier for them to kind of really hone in on that. Like maybe they were working somewhere as like a case manager, a bachelor's level position, and they decided, oh, I know I want to you know, do this work um, as the therapist. So they were able to kind of just jump right in knowing that. Mm-hmm. And is it, I'm curious, is it, I don't know if there is like a, it sounds like people go in all different directions um, after, as a social worker, I'm curious, is it typical for people to go into private practice? And I just would love to know more about your journey to private practice. Was that something you did right away or eventually got to? And how did you make the decision? Sure. So, you know, statistically, I don't know how many, like what percentage of um, social work graduates end up in private practice. I mean, not all social workers go on to get licensed, right? So if once you have your MSW, you have the option then to go the licensure track. And to do that, you know, you have to do the same as pretty much all the other uh, professions. We have to do 3,200 clinically supervised hours, all the extra classes. Um, And you're not allowed to count any of the hours you did while you were in school, actually. So you've got to start from scratch after you you graduate Um, and, and then sit for the licensing exams. So and that's when you would become an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker. So in order to become an LCSW, you first have to have your MSW. I would say that it probably depends a little bit on where you are geographically located or maybe even what school you went to. But in the social work world, there sometimes can be a little bit of a negative association with private practice um, because social work at at its core is really um, a practice that's aimed for working with more disenfranchised communities, working with people around oppression, poverty, severe mental illness. And so because that's the lens that social work takes, private practice is tends to be seen as something that's a little bit more um, inaccessible, right, for, um, for the larger society. And so sometimes in some social work circles, it can be sort of frowned upon, like sort of like, oh, you're not really doing the real, the real work. 
Um, and you know, I don't, I don't think there is quote unquote real work or not real work. I mean, suffering is suffering and, uh, we show up for people in whatever best way we can at that particular point in our life. I know that I, after grad school worked in community mental health for six years and that was great. It was super rewarding. And, you know, I learned a lot and I also got super burned out and was ready for a change. And private practice was a perfect transition when I was ready for that, for that change. And to, you know, just have a little bit more freedom, more control over my own schedule, over my clientele. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Interesting. Did your uh, training prepare you for private practice at all, or you had to figure it out on your own? Not at all. Not at all. There's, I, I would say there was nothing I learned in graduate school that would prepare me for anything having to do with private practice. No. Okay. What led you to feeling burnt out in community work? Well, I think, you know, a lot of us who go into social work, the idea of, you know, working with um, underserved populations is really exciting. Uh, but then sometimes once you actually get into the work and you're in the nonprofits and you see how dysfunctional a lot of the nonprofits are, you know, you realize that sometimes you're a little more idealistic than it really turns out to be. And I think it, there can be frustration because you're often overworked, underpaid, uh, under-resourced. I mean, my very, very first client when I finished grad school, I'll never forget, was a teenage boy who was, you know, having a psychotic episode um, and having, you know, delusions of wanting to harm his mother. And it's like, oh my God, I was not equipped for that, right? So this is like, they just throw you in um, oftentimes. And so I think burnout can be easy when, you know, you're working with really high stress populations and communities. I mean, to be fair, I learned a lot and I wouldn't change it for anything. I'm glad I had that experience. It was really important for me, but, you know, and then I went into program management. So I was running... um, housing programs for foster youth for several years where I was overseeing all aspects of their care, mental health, education, job procurement, you know, their day-to-day living. And so I was on call a lot too, because these were 24 seven facilities. So I um, was just ready for something where I was going to get a little, a little bit of my life back. Um, It was a hard choice because I really did love those clients. I really um, got a lot out of working with them, but um, I also was ready for something a little different. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's nice that you were in a position that you could, um, you know, that you had options that you could have stayed, you could have gone down a different path or you could have, and it sounds like what you ended up doing is taking control through starting your own private practice. It's just nice that you had that luxury and were able to actually act on it um, and take care of yourself in that way. And yeah, I'm so curious to hear about how you actually like uh, figured out how to open a private practice. Cause similar to you, the, you know, I had a, the same, a similar experience where you don't get that training <laughs> in, um, in grad school and it can be really daunting. Um, and, I know in a previous, you know, in previous conversations with Ken, we've talked about how we, you know, what our journeys were to starting a private practice. And I'm so curious to hear yours. Like, how did you make it happen once you made the decision? All the private practice war stories. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I was still working full time at the uh, nonprofit 
at the time that I started my practice. So I got licensed in 2008 and um, I knew I wanted to start a private practice, but I just didn't even really know where to begin or how to begin. And, you know, I always thrived in school. I always do really well when I have an assignment or have <laughs> a due date on something. And so the way I started my practice is actually kind of a funny story. I have a family friend who is an LCSW and somebody had called her about wanting to find a therapist for their teenage daughter. And she goes, I'm not available, but you should call Daniela Tempesta and gave her my personal cell phone uh. number. And this is, I have not started anything at this point. So I'm at a friend's house on a Saturday afternoon. I get this random call. I answer the phone. I'm like, hello, you know, and there's a woman who's like, I was referred to you by so-and-so and do you have an opening? And I'm just like, oh my God, what's going on? And in that moment, this like split second, I just was like, you know what? I'm working on moving into a new office. If you give me a couple of weeks, we can schedule an appointment. I had no intention before that phone call of like finding an office yet. It was just one of those <laughs> things where I was like, okay, I have my first client. It was just handed to me. So I'm yeah. just going to make this happen. So I got off the phone. I, you know, looked for an office. I ended up just getting the first one I saw for just one day a week. And then, you know, looking up all the other sort of things that I needed to register with and make sure I had like an EIN and an NPI. And I'm sure you guys have talked about all that fun stuff. Um, and I just sort of jumped in, put up a, hung a shingle, as they say, you know, and put a profile on psychology today and um, was able to get like two more clients within a couple of months. So for a little while, I just had this teeny tiny practice, three clients, one day a week, and it just started there. And as more momentum, you know, began to happen in the practice, that's when I really started thinking about uh, expanding to more days. But it was, you know, starting a practice from scratch is really, really hard. And I think there's a lot more resources nowadays, these Facebook groups, all these other things, you know, EHRs like Luminello who are there for their community and want to support them in building their practices. Like there was nothing like that that I was aware of back in 2008 when I was starting my practice. So I was just sort of winging it. Um, and you know, word of mouth, getting recommendations from people of like who are good people to meet. And that's actually how I know Ken is that somebody told me, oh, if you want to work with teens, you should really meet Ken. And so I cold called him and was like, can I come to your office and meet you? And somehow, luckily, he said yes. And I, <laughs> he gave me 15 minutes of his time and we met and I told him about what I was doing. And that was sort of what I was doing at that time was just trying to go around and meet people, have coffees, shake hands you know, show people who I was in the hopes that they might send a referral my way. So very, very old school before uh, all kinds of social media. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm making myself sound old by saying that. <laughs> I swear I'm not that old. <laughs> Had you, did you have any background in business or that side of running a practice? No, I didn't have any background in business per se. I mean, I guess in, in running these housing programs, I got a lot of insight into, you know, things happening behind the scenes, but still totally different. I think probably the one, I think I was born with an entre entrepreneurial spirit and my mother uh, was an entrepreneur and ran a very successful business from the time I was three years old. And I grew up, you know, spending time with her in her office and all of her coworkers. And so I think I saw that around me. Um, and probably a little bit of it wore off. But yeah, otherwise, no. It was really just kind of taking each step as it came. Mm. 
I don't know if it's great yeah. that you, you met the challenge head on. I actually remember in my fellowship specifically being told by one of the attendings, uh, you are not here to learn how to go in a private practice. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess I won't ever bring that subject up again with you. Um, yeah. But yeah, there seems to be um, in, in the academic world, perhaps people go into academia because they're really just not that interested in private practice or they don't. Um, it's scary for them and um, the thought that you're supposed to go a particular pathway can be really powerful when you're in training and so I think the fact that you kind of found your own way is really refreshing and it probably comes in real useful when doing therapy we often see clients and patients who are kind of stuck or feeling like they're supposed to go one direction yes. but they they maybe feel um, some anxiety or whatever the issue is that's keeping them from taking risks. So Right, and that leap is hard to, to go from something that's safe and secure that you know, even if it's uncomfortable, is can be hard. And I think, you know, that's why it was nice for me to be able to start out without having to give up the security of my full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had the flexibility. They allowed me to stay on just as a clinical supervisor. So I was still working some hours for them as a supervisor. Um, and so it was it was a gradual phase out, mm -hmm. which how long was nice. It, how long did it take you? I'd say it took me probably about two years till I was full time in private practice. Because during that time, I also started teaching. I was teaching at um, Holy Names University in Oakland in their psychology program. So I kind of had my hand in a lot of different pots, which is very, very typical for me. Uh, I, I tend to get bored if I'm not doing a couple different things at once. So mm. got it. Yeah. And I think it's so helpful for people to hear that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I do. I've, I've heard that. I've seen that question out there. Like, how do you make the leap in the transition? It's so hard and scary, especially if you were already kind of established on one track, if you will, like working in community yeah. mental health forever. And there are benefits there. And there's, there's a lot of risk in private practice and a lot of benefit too. Um, and so I think it's really helpful to hear that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, that there is a slow transition. Um, it might make it feel just, you know, like it, it might make people feel in general, a little bit more willing to try it out and with like just less pressure in general, cause it's real. I mean, the financial pressure and it yes. does take time to build a private practice. I don't think I know anyone Absolutely. who, you know, hit the ground running and was the full practice overnight. So, um, I think that's reassuring for anyone who might be starting out. Uh, just to know that doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, That's what we teach our clients, right? Like to move away from black and white thinking. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's great to be able to kind of um, do that in our, in our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, in some situations it wouldn't make sense for somebody to just go for it, right? Depending on what else they have going on, but not everybody's yeah. situation is going to, be like that. And I think the other thing that's nice is that, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the book, Designing Your Life. It's um, from the design school at Stanford. And it's just the best book I've found on really trying to help people pick which direction they want to go in, you know, life, career, et cetera. But they talk um, about it from like a product design perspective. And they talk about the importance of like trying everything, modeling things, 
prototyping. And so they talk about go try something before you just completely sign up to do it, right? Like if there's that opportunity to prototype it, can you do it a couple hours a week, even if it's volunteer on a, you know, volunteer basis, you know, give it a try to make sure it's actually something that you like before you jump ship. And you were doing that in elementary school. <laughs> and, <laughs> Barely. <laughs> but over time, you know, working your way up to, well, I'm curious, um, that, that is, that is great advice. How did you finally decide to take the leap and go full-time private practice? Or what did you need to have to happen for that to become a reality for you? It's a good question. Um, I think part of it was having enough clients to feel like, you know, even if I didn't have a ton more overnight that I could sustain myself with the group that I had. The other thing that was really a forcing function for me, in all honesty, was that I was getting pushed out of the office space I was in. I was subletting two two days a week and we all had to leave. And it was during this time when it was so crazy and it was so hard to find an office. It was so stressful. And I ended up finding an amazing office, but it was really expensive and I had to just commit to it, you know? And so I, I signed the lease, I got the office and now it's like, okay, now it's time to make this happen. So that was also a forcing function for me where it was like, all right, well, I've got to fill, I've got to fill these days because I'm paying for this space now. Right, right. Sometimes it takes an external uh, push to, to seal the deal. Did you ramp yeah. up your, your marketing at that time or did things just over time naturally fall into place? You know, I can't say that I've ever done any like super formal marketing um, outside of, you know, what we talked about in terms of me trying to meet other yeah. therapists for coffees mm-hmm. um, and just get to know other people in the field. Uh, obviously, having an online presence is super important. So um, I did have a website at that time, and I think I did start to work on um, updating it at that time. That was also the time when I contemplated, like, should I go on an insurance panel? That would fill my practice really quickly. You know, is it worth it? So there was a lot of sort of like hemming and hawing about about that at that particular moment. And I did actually go on a one panel for a little bit of time, but um, I was just so frustrated with the, you know, low payouts and all the extra paperwork that I was sort of like, you know what, I, I'm just going to go it alone. And I think you have to have a little bit of faith to do that because you, you know, you can't know for sure that those clients are coming. You have to just sort of trust a little bit. But luckily, actually, almost all of the insurance clients I was seeing, which was just like a handful, but when I told all of them I was going off the plan, um, almost all of them decided to switch over to self-pay and stay with me anyway. So kind of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So... Oh, I was just gonna, sorry, Karen. I was just, what what was the most painful um, paperwork that you had to be doing for the insurance companies? Well, back then I, we were like submitting all the claims like via snail mail. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, there may have been some better way, but that was the the way that was offered to me. Um, and so that was just you know challenging to have to fill out all this paperwork by hand and then mail it in and then wait however long for them to process it and then mail it back. So I was getting paid like months after I actually saw the client. Um, And then, you know, sometimes they would come back and they would ask me to, uh, you know, provide records in order to try to basically like legitimize the need for the client to have the treatment. And And I just was like, you know what, this is not 
why I'm doing this. <laughs> so um, it felt frustrating. I was like that I was doing all this extra work and getting paid about half of what my cash rate was. Hmm. So. so if someone new was starting out and they were kind of in this position as a new, uh, they're like fresh out of social work or just starting to make the transition from a different job and considering private practice. And they're in that position where they're not totally full or they're not full at all. And they're trying to figure out the best strategy. What would you advise them? Would you say like, let stick it out, you know, like stick it out, see if you can uh, build a practice with, private pay clients? Would you encourage people to, to kind of like what you did, try out an insurance panel to help fill and to see how that goes? Or I'm sure maybe it depends a little bit on where you're located and some other factors, but having been through it and kind of experienced both, what, I don't know, what would you advise someone? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think you're right. I think it would probably depend somewhat on geographic location. Cause I think, you know, Paying out of pocket is really normal in the Bay Area, and um, it's something that I think is almost expected when somebody says, oh, can I get the name of your therapist? You know, people almost expect that they're not going to be in their insurance network, but that's not going to necessarily be the case everywhere. And I think there are a lot of practices that really are insurance only because, um, you know, that's what's available for people. And so I think it really depends on that. I think it also depends on your particular situation in terms of you know, could, could you weather a couple of months of, you know, not getting paid that much to sort of wait it out? Because for some people, that's just not right. going to be an option. And I wouldn't want anybody to put themselves like in financial peril. Right. Um, but I do think, I mean, it, this is just my personal opinion, but I, I do think if you can just commit to something and go for it, it tends to work out better. So if you have that option financially to swing it, I would say just commit to trying to make the leap if that's what you ultimately want is to be totally self-pay. Because I think when we're kind of straddling both sides, it's it's hard to really do what we need to do to make the other side happen. But there's a forcing function again, if you don't have that backup of insurance, it's like, all right, I gotta get out there. I gotta meet people. I've gotta go to these networking things. And so it really kind of drives you. Right, right, yeah. It's, I love that that was your experience with both like the first client and then also with the office space, how it was just like, all right, the phone call came. So now I have to make this happen. And same with office. Like I, it's so it's a good, I think it's a great, like it's, it's inspirational, honestly, to think about like, you know, just, it ta- it's really vulnerable and it takes a lot of courage <laughs> to, to take that leap. And it's, I think it's, reassuring for me and I'm hope for other people too to hear that as like a success story you know that you know you can make the commitment first and then um you know things follow fall in place after that um totally cliche to say but you got to believe in yourself right (laughs) yeah Yeah. and and then you took it to the, the next level by starting a group right can I'm curious how that came to be Yeah, in uh, 2017, I decided to expand to a group practice model. So um, I did that initially by just adding one clinician. And then over time, um, I added a few more. And, you know, I had never really thought that much about having a group practice. But at that particular time, I had a lot of referrals 
and not enough spots. I had a pretty long waiting list and I was constantly trying to find a colleague to, you know, refer this client to. Cause I mean, I do, if somebody calls me, I do try to make sure I help them find somebody. Um, even if it's not me. And so I was doing a lot of work to calling around to other colleagues to see who has availability and whatnot. And so I said, hmm, you know, what about if I were to in-house this? What if I had another colleague who worked here with me in my practice and I could funnel those referrals to that person? So I decided to just, again, forcing function, wait list, <laughs> and, you know, being tired of trying to always find people with openings and decided to just give it a try. And it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. If it doesn't work, then, you know, I'll just go back to the tried and true solo practice. But um, I hired my first clinician and it went, it went pretty well. And so uh, not effortless by any means, but um, from there on, I added um, a few more clinicians. The, the number of clinicians in my practice sort of ebbs and flows because unfortunately people come, they learn a lot about private practice, they get full and then they leave to start their own practices. So it's, it's hard to hold on to good people for a really long time, but it's still... It's still just a nice way to kind of change it up. Yeah. What, what's the model you have of them? Did you start paying them a salary or is it, um, so that's risky at the beginning, right? Cause you don't know if they're going to bring so, in more than you're paying them. So good question. Um, and no, no salary. Um, the way that I have it structured. And I would say probably a lot of the smaller group practices, if you're like a gigantic group practice, I do think they have people on salary. But for um, the smaller group practices, you get a percentage of um, any clients you see. So um, you're paid out hourly based on the clients that you see. So basically, it's not like if they were sitting there in an office that was empty all week that I would still have to pay them. And so it's risky for them too, just like it is for someone starting in private practice that there is going to be a little bit of ramp up time. I mean, the better part is that you don't have to worry about any of the business headaches and somebody else gives you all your referrals. Uh, right. Sure. Right. And how do you, what's the process of choosing uh, somebody you want to bring into your group? How do you evaluate uh, their skills as a clinician? Are you even doing that? Um, I'm curious how you get to know them. It's hard. It's a good question. And I wish I had like a super succinct answer. I think I've gotten better at it over time, I will say. Um, and, you know, I, I think I relied really heavily initially on their, um, you know, recommendations from, from other people. So I would call their references, people who had supervised them before and hear from their perspective. And, you know, if somebody's giving a glowing review, that's always a good a good sign. But I think it's also important to remember that just because somebody did really well in one environment doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do well in, in yours. And over time, I shifted my interview model more to um, bringing a lot more vignettes into the interview process rather than just asking them, like, you know, tell me about how you work and blah, blah, give me an example of a time you did X, Y, and Z, is that I would give them vignettes of a typical client that we would see in my practice and ask them how they would conceptualize it, what types of interventions might they use to really get a sense of how they think on the spot. And I think the conceptualization part is particularly important, right? I mean, we all have a bag of tricks of interventions we can pull out that we know, but it's sort of like, well, why are you using that? intervention how does that fit into the model of how you understand the client and um you know what's going on for them so 
it's hard. It's hard to find good people. And it's, you know, there's a lot of competition now because there's a lot of group practices now all of a sudden. Um, and so it's definitely competitive, but you know, I think just sometimes it's just instinct too. When you get that feeling sitting in the room with somebody like, Oh my God, I'm so comfortable with this person. I could totally imagine talking with them. It's like, that is so important. And I think maybe I undervalued that a little bit at first. Um, and I, I learned from that mistake. And are these, is this a supervisor trainee relationship or these are licensed providers themselves? They are all licensed providers in my practice. I do not have any um, trainees. So everybody needs to be licensed uh, to work in, in my particular group. I've contemplated taking on trainees before, um, but it is a different level of commitment and responsibility and oversight that um, it felt it felt for me at the time more manageable to work with licensed clinicians. Hmm. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Are they independent contractors? Do you provide benefits? How does that play? Great question. At first they were independent contractors, um, but then the law changed. I don't remember what year it was maybe 2018 or 2019. There was a law that changed regarding independent contractors. You may have heard a lot about it because it has a lot to do with Uber and whether or not their employees were classified as independent contractors. So anyway, everybody needed to be switched over to employees. So everybody is now a W-2 employee. They get paid hourly. And I have different clinicians who work varying hours depending on their particular availability. Like I have one who's like a stay-at-home mom and just works one day a week because that's all that she can manage right now. So there's no benefits available for her working so little, but I have other folks who are more full-time as we would, I mean, full-time is kind of a relative term in private practice, but um, if they're working, you know, at least more than 20 hours, then um, there are benefits available to them, health insurance benefits, but nothing yet like uh, retirement plans or anything like that. That would be, yeah, making it even more complicated. Hmm. Yeah, the <laughs> I level. mean, there's a lot, you know, Ken, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of ins and outs of having to deal with even just having employees is not as simple as I thought it would be. No, a lot of uh, regulations yeah. around it, a lot of taxes, yeah. paperwork yes. that goes with it. Yeah. Did you, are you a corporation or did you think about going the pathway? Oh. I am an S corp. Yeah. I, I made that transition in 2017 when I, when I opened the group and that was per the recommendation of my CPA. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So for new grads, would you recommend they look to join a group when, if they want to go the private practice route or is it not, so important whether they're on their own or joining a group as long as they give it time I think it totally depends on the personality of the clinician I think that there are some people who are you know maybe a bit more oriented like I am in in that they have that entrepreneurial spirit they they want to run a business in addition to seeing clients because there is you know there's just a lot of things you have to figure out hoops you have to jump through in running a business and so I think if you feel up for that, I would say go for it in private practice. If you just want to show up and see clients and not worry about any of the headache, then a group practice is a great way to go. You're probably going to get you know, compensated a little bit less than you would if you were seeing the clients in your very own practice, right? But you also don't have any of the overhead. 
You're not paying for the office. You're not paying for the liability insurance. You're not worrying about mm-hmm. any of the headaches. So I think for somebody who's really new, it can be a great way to just dip your toe in the water without having to worry about too much of the headache, get a flavor for private practice, see if you like it. And you know, then if, if you do, then you can think about, you know, would I want to do this on my own? I think for some people, they just, they just know they have that business sense that they just want to do it on their own. But I think otherwise, a group practice could be a really good, good way to just jump in. That's interesting, but the amount of time they save by not having to run a business, they can see more clients. Oh my goodness. I mean, if I could tell you the amount of time I just spent over the last two weeks trying to understand the No Surprises Act, which maybe you'll do an episode on, I don't know. But (laughs) I mean, I spent so much time and I built all the templates and I built all the everything and all they have to do is send them, you know? It's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. they didn't even have to think about it, read it, research it. Yeah. So there's definitely benefits to being an employee in a group practice. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that it's helpful to know that that's an option because it, it again, going back to, I probably for all of us across the different professions, but under the same umbrella of like help wanting to help people, private practice is just not really talked about. And so I think it's really daunting to go into. So it's nice to know like there are easier ways of getting into it or testing it out without taking on all the responsibility and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, uh, in, in my world there, you can actually get your hour, like you can get some hours you're still training to, um, get your license within a private practice. So, like that's another mm-hmm. way that you can just figure out like, is this something I even want to do? And also just, you know, just understand the business side of things and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's helpful to know because I think maybe a lot of people, and this is my experience too, just might think like you just have to somehow know how to do everything one day when you wake up and decide I want to do private practice. And it's just very comforting to know that there's lots of steps you can take to just make it feel easier and more manageable for people who are interested. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The same thing with social workers, they can get their hours in a private practice setting um, as well. So I think that's a great point that that's another great way to just sort of try it out. And I think for people who do that and then get licensed, the transition is so much easier because they already have a a client load. And they've already been doing this. They, they may need to take on more responsibility in different ways now, but so much of it is familiar. Whereas when I left nonprofit, it was like, I, I wasn't taking any of my clients with me. You know, um, yeah. it, that wasn't going to happen. I was starting from scratch. Right. Right. So I think that's a great point. Well, it's, uh, it's exciting to think about uh, your your journey and um, how you've you've kind of, over the years, just added on additional layers of growth and been it's really nice hearing your story and thank you thank you for having uh, me this was really fun that's great it's been wonderful to have you and looking forward to talking more about private practice and uh helping new grads uh, figure out their pathway uh soon we'll be back um in a couple of weeks with our next um our next uh listener question maybe carrie um we have a couple of those that uh, we could be going through and um so thank you both for joining uh the podcast today and look forward to chatting again real soon bye guys bye thanks bye bye if you like today's podcast and want to hear more follow us on apple podcasts 
Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have a question you'd like to be discussed on a future podcast, send it to enlightenedpractice at luminello.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.